It was a fatal mistake, is my view, in actually even trying to get there. It was sort of trying to put Band-Aids around a pretty bad decision in terms of protocol design. Because if you do really want a protocol design that is independent of individual media layers packetization, then somehow you need to do this form of adaptation. And there's only really two ways of doing it. One way is when you enter this new network realm, you slice and dice on ingress, and on egress you reassemble. And folk had tried that, and it really didn't work very well. It required all those little fragments to egress at the same point to reassemble them and send you know, the newly reassembled packet on its way. The IP model was actually more insightful. It said, look, I'm just going to leave the original destination address on all the little fragments. So I'll slice and dice on ingress, and I'll allow other networks further down the line to slice and dice the sliced and diced. This can go on, you know, turtles all the way down for as small as you need. And let's leave it to the common host at the other end to reassemble this mess. Now, incredibly flexible. IPv6, no, we're going to send back a message saying it was too big. You should try again using a smaller packet. You're listening to Ping, a podcast by APNIC discussing all things related to measuring the internet. I'm your host, George Michelson. In this episode, I'm talking to Jeff Houston from APNIC Labs in his regular monthly spot on Ping. This time, Jeff and I discussed IPv6, its roots back in the 1990s against the context of the government OSI protocol drive and some issues which fundamentally undermine its ability to replace IPv4 in the DNS. Because of a change to an IETF document being proposed, there are risks to the integrity of service delivery, which Jeff thinks need to be reconsidered. It comes down to the exact meanings of the IETF normative language and use of the word should in this context. What should people do? The least harm. Jeff, welcome back to Ping. What should we talk about this time? Well, today, George, I think it's time to line up some sacred cows and kick them. Oh, moo. <laughs> Absolutely. It's time to get the IPv6 sacred cows out, out again and take them for a bit of a spin around the block. Right. And actually talk about what's wrong with IPv6 which for some of the zealots out there is going to be a bit of a painful episode to listen to. So don't say you haven't been warned. Okay, so it's IPv6, but it's a refreshingly honest look at IPv6. Uh, yes, it is. Yes, it is. And, and I want to start with some background, just some background. So, you know, dial the time machine all the way back to around 1993 was I remember it well. <laughs> I think I've forgotten. It's only 30 years ago. But yes, because at that point, we were getting a bit sick and tired of the beauty parade of potential successors to IPv4. My personal favourite was Tubar for T 
TCP and UDP with bigger addresses. But I also need to declare at this point that I secretly believed CLNP, the connectionless network protocol from the ISO OSI stack, was going to work and that we'd all be running OSI networks, Jeff. Oh, how naive was I? You see, that was the issue. And Tuba was everything that the internet folk had fought against for the previous 10 years or so. And in 1992, when the Internet Architecture Board at the time said, the future of the internet shall be OSI, there was a wholesale revolution. Oh, yeah. A bit like the French Revolution, we stormed the Bastille, we tipped them all out, and we set up a new Internet Architecture Board that actually had a little bit more clue and a little bit less sort of brainless ability to make pointless assertions. It could have worked, Jeff. It didn't work, but it could have worked. But it involved stepping out into an unknown, into a space that was not at that stage provably viable as a global scale network. It was a lot of pipe dream, a lot. It was the only protocol architecture that contained two transport protocols that inherently could not capital N, capital O, capital T, not interoperate. Yeah. There was CLNS, the connectionless network sort of connection service, and there was a connection-oriented service, and you couldn't find And never the twain shall meet. Uh, there was no kind of araldite or super goo that was going to fix that mess. It was a walking contradiction. The only folk who'd swallowed the pill were a bunch of governments and their government OSI profile programs. People like me. Gossip to the rescue. <laughs> well, thank you, George. <laughs> <laughs> but the result of that revolution was a reframing of how do we take what we know in classic IP and make it better for a bigger scale network. And although I say Tuba was my favorite, there were three or four competing ideas floating around at the time. Right. The Tuba was kind of a misnomer. It really just was OSI. Right. And, and it used the, God, what was it? Variable length yes. N snap addresses. Yeah. There's one thing to make a silicon designer's feet go weak, make them tremble in, in awe and fear. It's variable length fields in headers. You don't want that. You want to clock the packet off the wire in constant speed and know exactly when you have everything you need to do the next logical routing stage and variable length. Ain't it? Variable length is a swear word in those circles. And that was almost the other major problem here with that sort of addressing format. You can't do that and stress the silicon to work at the absolute peak rate because it won't. No. So Tuba, OSI, near. There was a really weird one called PIP. Yes. And I kind of liked it because of its abstract nature. The whole idea was if I'm going to visit a distant relation across the other side of the globe. When I set out on my journey, the last thing I need is a street map of the destination. I actually just need to know how to get to the nearest airport. And then when I hop in the plane, I just want a map of the earth really and going, well, what's the closest airport? And when I get off, I need a more detailed map and so on. So the amount of detail you need in a map depends on where you are and where you're going. Yeah. And PIP had that kind of progressive revealing 
trying to build into it. It was a beautiful idea. I never understood how it could possibly work, but it was a beautiful idea. No. <laughs> and there was SIP as well, I believe, that I think ultimately combined with Tuba to come up with what we know as IPv6, although I think it was going to be IPNG. Well, you're ignoring Noel Chiappa's even more obscure graph-based routing and addressing. Let's skate over that one because no one understood it except Noel, I guess. And we got to this SIP. Now, they, you say it was a union of tuba and something else, but I think that was just to keep the tuba folk quiet. All it really was is you took the IP code, the source code, and when you saw a constant 32, you changed it to a constant 64 and recompiled it. Not a bad approach. Simple. It worked. It worked. <laughs> oh, my God. It worked. And that was kind of the essence of where IPv6 started from. But the tweakers got their hand on it. And across the year of 93, there was a progressive amount of tweaking. And it sort of went in a number of ways. 64 bits was perfectly good enough. That's why we made it 128. You're jumping ahead of the story there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. There was this huge fight going on at the time about how IPv4 had overloaded semantics. It was both who you are and where you are. And we were starting to appreciate mobility. And the issue was in an IPv4 network, if you wanted to be mobile, you couldn't take your address with you because the locational aspects of routing was sort of too important. And mobility was a huge goal at that stage. That was a massive deliverable. Right. And so without really knowing what we were doing, and as it turned out, we really, really didn't know what we were doing, we were going to borrow from Ethernet and overachieve. And whereas Ethernet, every manufacturer had a block of numbers drawn from the uh, 48-bit media access control address set. The link layer address of the framing object that went in the Ethernet link. So the idea was that we'd chuck that address, pad it out to 64 bits, and put that in another 64 address bits. That was your permanent identifier. And it wasn't a structured space, but no matter where you went, no matter where you went and what you were connected to, it would be constant. It was like your MAC address up at the IP level. And indeed, to all intents and purposes, it was your MAC address up at the IP level. An interesting idea, Jeff, because that conflicts with so many things we do now in modern practice to obscure your unique identity <laughs> on a global <laughs> network. But if you think back to simpler times, there's actually something quite appealing that I was going to have a mobile identity. I could drop anywhere and simply carry on with what I was doing. Not a bad model. Yes, just now I mentioned privacy, but apart from a minor problem of privacy, it was a fine idea. But oddly enough, it was enough to justify doubling the address space. Yeah. Doubling. So all of a sudden out came 128 bits. But, you know, that wasn't the big issue. There were two issues that I think in V6 were just, just the big changes. The first is how do you get your address? And in V4, we used broadcast. 
and a relatively simple mechanism called ARP, the Address Resolution Protocol. Yeah, where it mapped quite directly to the broadcast technology on an Ethernet. Right. Hey, anyone. Hey, everyone. I want to use this address. Is anyone using it? Silence. Ah, silence is golden. I'll use it. Pretty much. Seemed to work. Of course, it had a few problems in going to things other than Ethernet when you couldn't shout out to everyone. But you have to remember one thing, and that is that the guy who'd actually did the compilation work, and it was a male, Steve Deering, had just got his PhD on multicast. Yeah. And he couldn't resist. He could not resist. The one technology that 30 years later still doesn't work properly, that is at the heart of V6 address acquisition. Yeah. The whole site local address uses multicast, or should I say barely manages to use multicast because, you know, it's a little so- it makes a radical departure from the prior state, which was directly mapping to broadcast in Ethernet terms and says, we're in a modern domain, let's move up the tree from broadcast to multicast, but enshrine a somewhat similar idea. I will put a message out into a community that can see it saying, tell me what I need to know. Right. But that wasn't the cardinal sin. The cardinal sin was to go the fashionable path. Because a few years earlier in 1989, I think, Jeff Mogul, while he was working for DEC, had put out a paper saying, packet fragmentation is evil and horrible and is a cause of massive inefficiency and should never, ever be countenanced. Now, I think that was a piece of intellectual self-serving nonsense, to put it plainly. The one thing that had actually caused this industry to fall over itself time and time again was this whole issue of packet size. It's great to talk about packet pushing, but the thing is how big and how small do you allow the packet? Yeah. And that's actually a really vexed question because if you let the packets get too big and the bandwidth available is very small, each packet can jam up a transmission system for a long period of time. Sure, because until the whole of the packet flushes through the transmission buffer, no one else can use. But the other side of the coin, Jeff, I remember at the time, ATM was being promoted saying, oh, we're going to use 53 bytes, not even a rational number like 64. Well, you see, originally, and I think it was the French, had actually gone for a low number. It was just a bigger byte. In other words, I think that started at 16 bits. Right. And by the time they'd gone through a round of committee meetings and so on, they'd compromised to 32, but it was still meant to be just a large bite. Now, the Americans had started the other side. They saw a cell as being 128 bits. Yeah. Big. And so endless rounds of meetings, and they'd managed to find two implacable foes at 32 bits and 64 bits. Split the difference. Yeah, and off we go. Off we go. This is kind of an interesting place because this is the boundary of things that must be committed into chips in hardware, FPGAs, technology, things that are going to actually meet hard the bandwidth, the timing constraints, the signal encoding. These decisions are long-lived decisions. If you're going to design an inter-network protocol, that works across X25, ATM, Ethernet, 
and anything else that might come and is agnostic to these quite stringent demands of media-level hardware, what do you do? Now, one answer is lowest common denominator. You look at all the available technologies and pick the smallest packet and go, that's it. If I pick that one, all the rest will work. Or you do what the designers of IP actually did, which is, you know, let's punt it. Let's just punt it. Let's allow any size packet out there and over the next hop, if the packet is too big, take out, I was going to say precision grade scalpel, but it's really the chainsaw. Take out the chainsaw, <laughs> apply it to the <laughs> chop it up into bits that'll fit, put a minimal header on each of those fragments and send them on their merry way. And no one else need bother reassemble them until they get to their destination. And when they get to their destination, because they're all addressed to the same place, it's the job of the host at the other end to reassemble the original packet. Now, that was the towering strength of V4. But? That was what led you to work over X25, over Ethernet. Yep. Brilliant. No disagree. Absolutely worked. But there was a but. It came with all the questions and problems of what does it mean if you get a fragment that you don't expect to see. Well, in actual fact, Jeff Mogul's argument wasn't that. You've sort of advanced the state of thinking by 10 years and gone into the the world is hostile, it's a security problem. Jeff Mogul's argument was more banal. Oh, my God, that takes cycles. That takes time. It's horrendously yeah. inefficient. Well, reassembly no, we means buffers, means holding partial state, yep. means calculating completion, means checksumming, all kinds of costs. Flexibility comes with a cost. And one of the weird decisions in V6, I think, and and I still think it was a cardinal sin, was to strip out the fragmentation header out of the permanent part of the V6 address, address header. It was an optional bit. And secondly, stop, just literally stop any intermediate router from performing fragmentation on the fly. So if the packet was too big and you couldn't put it in the next hop, you had to stop yeah, and send a control packet back to the original sender. Hey, hey, I can't forward this. The packet you sent me is too big. Try again. Oh, by the way, here's a handy hint. It better be lower than this size next time. And you sent it backwards. So this is in a context of people having all kinds of conversations about PMTU, PathMTU discovery, and about the failure of V4 to include any mechanism baked into the protocol that reliably signaled what was the available packet size limit end-to-end. There were approximations and there were approaches and there were ways of doing it. I have a feeling this decision to say we don't frag and we don't carry forward small parts, but we do signal back what the choke point bandwidth is, was in part trying to address this problem. But I think the point you're making is it was a fatal mistake. It was a fatal mistake, is my view, in actually even trying to get there. It was sort of trying to put band-aids around a pretty bad decision in terms of protocol design. Because if you do really want a protocol design that is independent of individual media layers packetization, then somehow you need to do this form of adaptation. 
And there's only really two ways of doing it. One way is when you enter this new network realm, you slice and dice on ingress and on egress, you reassemble. And folk had tried that and it really didn't work very well. It required all those little fragments to egress at the same point to reassemble them and send you know, the newly reassembled packet on its way. The IP model was actually more insightful. It said, look, I'm just going to leave the original destination address on all the little fragments. So I'll slice and dice on ingress and I'll allow other networks further down the line to slice and dice the sliced and diced. Mm. This can go on, you know, turtles all the way down for as small as you need. And let's leave it to the common host at the other end to reassemble this mess. Yeah. Now, incredibly flexible. IPv6, no, we're going to send back a message saying it was too big. You should try again using a smaller packet. Now, we use the network in two kinds of ways. There are two very dominant transport protocols. There's TCP, reliable stream control, and there's UDP. So in TCP, I keep a copy of every packet I send until I get an acknowledgement. So when this sort of special control message, that packet was too big, comes back, I've got the packet still. It hasn't been acknowledged. Yeah. And so the TCP driver, when it receives that message, can go, oh, okay, I will reframe the unacknowledged data and send it using a smaller framing size and squeeze it through because I haven't forgotten that data because it hasn't been acknowledged yet. So for TCP, it's sort of, well, yeah, it's a bit of a pain, but it kind of works. The cost basis for a TCP connected protocol to reconstruct and send the part that it's been told couldn't go through in some ways is a low cost because it's built for retransmission anyway. It's waiting for acknowledgement to close out that state. Yeah, that's right. I'm like, it's, it's, it's not the world's greatest disaster. I'm like, it slows you down. I'm waiting for an act, waiting for an act. Oh, dear, I've got an ICMP message. Only for that RTT, though, because once you've acquired the new small size, you just use that persistently. You'll pick up speed again. So for TCP, this is not the end of the world. Yeah. And it is recoverable. Not too bad. But the other kind. UDP, send and forget. Yeah. And UDP is send and forget. What was that? Did I say something? <laughs> I don't remember saying that. Exactly. It is the Amnesiacs protocol. It's kind of, I've said that, that's it, event over. But I didn't get it. That's not my problem. I sent it. Yeah, I'm sorry. I don't remember sending it. Uh, there's nothing. <laughs> you don't keep a copy. There is no acknowledgement in UDP. Yeah. So in UDP, when this, that packet was too big, message comes in, the sender kind of goes, fascinating, fascinating. What do you want me to do with it? Yeah. And kind of the answer is, well, I don't know. And you kind of look at yourself going, well, I don't know either. So there has been this quality for most people's experience in the internet that TCP is the one to rule them all. We do web over TCP and we do VoIP over TCP and we do all these things over TCP. But we're here for a story that's about IPv6 and DNS. So I suppose the open question is, Jeff, which transport protocol does DNS use? Well, you see, that's the thing. We built the DNS to be as cheap and as fast as we could possibly make it. 
And those two words immediately say, well, TCP is a heavyweight protocol. It takes a three-packet exchange, which is one round trip time and a bit, to actually start up a session. Well, And only then have you got the session started, can you ask the question and presumably then get an answer. And then, hang on, got to close the session again. So both sides need a session state. They need session memory. You've got to do an endless exchange of packets. Cost, it's a delay. protocol, cost and delay. Yeah. Whereas UDP, it's kind of, hey, got an answer? Yep. Now, I've forgotten I've asked the question, but if you send me an answer, that'd be great. And that's all it is. Yeah. Lightning fast. Folk have done studies and, and compared to TCP, UDP has about a third or maybe a quarter of the overhead because there's no state held. There's no connection. That's it. You're done. So when the DNS came along, and the whole idea was to create a really, really lightweight, cheap, simple way of getting questions and answers, simple transactions, UDP was sitting there going, me, 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 use me, use me, I'm keen. And it was inescapably good. Yeah. Because small questions, they fitted neatly in a packet, small answers, fitted brilliantly, life is fine. But we're talking about a simpler world, Jeff. We're talking about a DNS that is principally about name to address lookup and addresses were IPv4 addresses and packets were small and did fit inside the thresholds. Well, the original threshold for DNS, the original model, and I've forgotten which RFC, someone can look it up if they're keen, was 512 octets or bytes as the payload. 576 as the packet size uh, once you put all the other bits in. Well, it isn't really. The, the maths is off slightly, but no one really cares. 512 is a neat size. It's kind of 2 to the power, I think it's 8, isn't it? No, 2 to the power 9. It's a nice number. Power of 2, 512 is it. And as long as you put limits on the size of a domain name, and you're dealing with V4 addresses anyway, and you don't try and sort of be too fancy, most questions and answers will fit inside 512 bytes, no problem. Yep. No problem. In a V4 world. In a V4 world. Here was this lightweight protocol. Now, V4 didn't really have how small a packet do you need without fragmentation, but because of fragmentation on the fly, it didn't matter too much. So even if you ran a link that only had a packet size of 128 bytes, for example, your 512-byte packet would hit this router and it would go, oh, I need to slice that into four subnet, four little components. It would happily do so and send them onward. No message back, no error message, no nothing. Just slice and dice and keep it going. And most of the time, it mostly worked. So small packets, even without a what we'd call a, a minimum MTU guarantee, it worked well enough that it just wasn't a problem. And when you did get large packets, in the average case, slicing along the path would get you where you needed to go. That's right. And so along came, I'm not sure which order to do this, but let's talk about DNSSEC. Because once folks start to hammer away at the DNS and start to rely upon it, then it's pretty clear that If you send out a question, anyone can give you the answer. 
anybody. And the DNS is easily fooled. It is credulous in the extreme. It kind of goes, hey, I've sent out a question. If anyone saw that question and they wish to answer, do so. And it's kind of, whoops, because there are nasty people out there who see the question flying past, look at it, it's not encrypted, and casually supply the wrong answer. So the risks of simply trusting answers in DNS protocol kind of reached a point where it was too much to bear. It really needed solutions, and there were much more insidious attacks than that. But along came this rather neat extension to DNS, and it is an extension, which basically adds cryptographic signatures to the answers. Now, I'm not going to go into the technology of DNSSEC here. We haven't got the time, the patience, or even the inclination this afternoon. But But the important thing is it made the messages get bigger. That's right, bigger answers, bigger answers. And sometimes those answers could not only be bigger than 512 bytes, they could be bigger than 1,500, sort of the maximum unfragmented packet on an Ethernet. And so at about that time, we started inventing some more stuff in the DNS. And one of the things we invented was extensions to the DNS, eDNS, E for extension, and one of those extensions was a field called the buffer size yeah, or the payload length. And what it said was, if I send you a query in DNS, in UDP, but say, look, I can handle a response up to, say, 4,096 bytes. Now, I know you're going to fragment it to get to me, but if the answer is, 4,096 bytes or less, just send it in UDP. Yeah. I'll pick up all the fragments and assemble them. Seemed to work. Well, it did work. It works. It works well in V4 because that fragmentation reassembly mechanism is absolutely appropriate to sending large units in UDP that can't be fit down a pipe and have to be chopped up. Right. So let's now think about V6 for a second. Along comes a big answer. And let's say that your local network supports jumbograms. It's a very advanced local network. And so you can actually put this large packet on your local network because it supports jumbograms. Works fine. And it works for a hop or two. And then all of a sudden, you've got to par yourself down to 1500. But you can't because it's V6 and you can't fragment forward. So you stop, discard the packet, and send back an ICMP message to the sender going, hey, buddy, too big. When you're talking to that destination, the biggest DNS packet you can send is 1,500, right? Ah, now, you've just kind of leapt over something there because ICMPv6 is a layer or two down the stack. You've got to get a message about behavior out of IP into the application space where you're doing DNS because it is an application and make an application change its behavior. You can't. It's not going to happen. The sender, the sender doesn't answer ICMP messages with more DNS. The best the packet sender can do is to say, oh, you know that destination? I'll remember for a certain amount of time, Linux, for example, it's 15 minutes, that when I send any more packets to that destination, I will fragment its source down to this value, 1500. Yeah. But that doesn't cause any new packet to send. It just puts an entry in its forwarding cache. So we've actually had DNS up the stack has lost. So what actually has to happen is the poor client who has sent the query has to time out 
Yeah. Waiting, waiting for an answer, waiting, waiting. That's a long time. My resolver waiting. typically says 30 seconds for that timeout. You've got a very patient resolver. Typical timers, 370 milliseconds, a little over a third of a second, 400 milliseconds, but the most popular values are one second. Now, you kind of go, one second, what's your problem? I'm sorry. Empires have come, grown, flourished, and fallen in one second on the internet. One second's an eon. And so timeouts are a really, really slow way of doing things. Because you get back a message in a round trip time. Most round trip times aren't one second. Most round trip times are tens and, and high 20s of a millisecond. So yeah. you know, it is a long time. We have a scaling problem here that the delay component of dealing with loss is now two or three decimal orders of magnitude slower than the typical expectation of a round trip. So he asks again, benighted client waits for the second and, and sends the question again. And now over at DNS land, the server land, receives the question, goes, ah, it's a big answer. It's bigger than 1500. I'm going to have to fragment this outgoing V6 packet. Good and fine, but how does it fragment it? Ah, you've got to insert an optional extension header between the V6 header and the UDP header. I've got to make the UDP header swing further down the packet by this new amount of a fragmentation header, which is not in every packet. So we've taken nice, fixed structure, comprehensible packets, and we've just inserted into them a shift everything down the queue and put a new piece in. Remember what I said about variable addresses? Yeah, horrible. It applies in many cases and also applies to variable extension headers. And you kind of go, network guys, you shouldn't be looking at the UDP header in a packet. And they go, oh, but we do. We do it for equal cost multipath. We do it for a whole bunch of reasons. We look. And if you're going to hide this, a variable offset away from the header of the packet, we're going to object. We're either going to discard the packet straight away or we're going to put it in the slow path, which means most of the packets don't get there. Right? So when you start fragmenting in V6, you inherit a number of problems. The security folk don't like fragments. It is a security nightmare. No. In fact, even the ICMP message is not authenticated. I can send you fake ICMP packet too big messages and you'll believe them because you've got no reason not to. And so all this stuff is an attack vector. Well, if you think about what goes on with packet firewalls and inspection, dealing with fragments that are valid implicitly means maintaining state to understand their validity. So the cost on a router of handling fragments is looking up state. It's not free. So we did an experiment back in, oh, it was April, no, July 2020. And we sent out a big fragmented answer in DNS 27 million times to a bunch of random clients recruited through an ad campaign, right? 11 million clients never got the answer. Hmm. It's a failure rate of 41%. Now, I don't know how good a protocol engineer you are. Not very. But if I'm faced with a medium that has a 41% failure rate, I'm going to give up. It just doesn't work. And so V6 doesn't support large DNS responses. So this begs the question, if we've extended DNS to have eDNS, we also extended DNS to work over TCP as a transport. 
So noting the multiple RTT component, isn't it a better choice to move DNS to TCP at this point? Well, you're leaping way ahead of me here. So let's just pause to reflect where we are. When you use V6 and UDP and DNS and combine it with the potential for large answers, you're asking for trouble. And so some time ago, RFC 3901, a venerable RFC, and it was actually titled Guidance for the Use of V6 in DNS Transport. Yeah? Yeah. So you'd think it would say something about, well, V6 is good. This is 2004, by the way. And do you know what it actually says? It says every recursive name server should be either V4 only or dual stack. And we don't care which. But it's got to have four. And it further goes on, this rules out IPv6 only recursive servers. Just no, it's not in the guidance. Wow. And furthermore, every DNS zone should, that's a capital should, capital S-H-O-U-L-D. And why I say capital should is an incantation to the magic of some normative words in IETF terminology. Should says, I'm not just expressing a preference. I'm giving you a really hard nudge that if you don't do what I say should happen, things are going to go badly. It's going to be inefficient. It's going to be slow. It may not break. It's not a capital M-U-S-T must. But a capital S-H-O-U-L-D says, you know, this is more than a hint. Yeah, It's whacking you about a head with a clue stick going, this is in everyone's interest. So what they're saying is every DNS zone should be served with at least one V4 reachable name server. And so this entire RFC, IPv6 transport guidelines, actually says, if I can paraphrase, use V4. Well, it says that sunset V4 will not work for the DNS. Use V4. That's all it says. V6, it's good to have as well, but use V4. That's what you need to make it work. Now, that's fine until, I don't know, the last IETF meeting in November of 2023 in Prague where up comes a new RFC that goes, we should change this around. We should put out a new revision to 3901 that says at least two name servers for a zone are dual stack name servers and every authoritative DNS zone should be served by at least one V6 reachable authoritative name server. It actually is not quite the opposite of 3901, but it's a big turnaround. So it doesn't say no four, but it says should six. And like I said, should is a big word. Yeah. Should says, let me find some text here. There may exist spallard reasons why you can ignore a should. But if you do so, the full implications must be understood and carefully weighed before deviating, before choosing a different course. That's RFC 2119. So we're kind of saying this should with use V6 in the DNS is kind of you really, really, really should nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And what are the reasons? Are they saying you really should set up a DNS environment that has a 41% failure rate? 
That's just crazy talk. I know there are V6 zealots out there. I know there are folk for which the V6 cannon has been inscribed upon parchment, burnt down from some burning mountain. You know, this has all the elements of an emerging theocracy of, of stupidity. But that kind of failure rate is you can't say should and invite folk to create a busted internet. Yeah, so it's got qualities that go to what is the behavior of services in the presence of dual stack networks. So DNS being in UDP and also being driven by this configuration directive that lists the resolvers you have available, sometimes by IP address, sometimes by name, it has this question, which one of the two protocols are you actually going to use? It's a bit non-deterministic, isn't it, Jeff? We're getting into some interesting engineering here, and, and you're touching on an area that has gone by the rather weirdly named happy eyeballs. As we moved from a mono stack to a duo stack, two stacks, we wanted to avoid the issue that two stacks were worse than one, that having two protocols was actually slower than having one. That was the first problem. Slower because? Well, if you tried one protocol and sort of waited until it failed and then tried the second. You have a delay waiting for completion of a thing that... The wait for failure delay. And in Unix and other implementations of TCP, a TCP connection only signaled failure three minutes after you tried. Ooh. Now, I said entire empires rose and fell in one second. In three minutes, it's the history of the universe. Continents have moved. Continents have shifted around. Pangaea has come and gone in three minutes. You can't do that. You just can't. And implementations that tried it, start up protocol A in TCP, wait for it to signal failure. You know, even Windows had a 75-second delay time. Now, this is just too long. And so up came this so-called happy eyeballs, race to completion. So instead of starting off a session in one protocol and waiting for TCP to go, nah, no good. You actually started off two sessions and the first one to kind of complete the connection won. So you send off your SIN. The first one to give you back a SINAC, you'd complete and go, yes, this is good. So at a cost of doing two things in parallel, you go with the quicker, but you've established two bubbles of state, one in four, one in six. In six. And in some ways, that's the ultimate benefit to the user. It's the quickest way to get there. Yeah. But in some ways, it doesn't help with the transition. Because if V4 is always faster, you'll never choose V6. You never know when to turn it off. Even when 100% of the internet, that happy state where they're all dual stacked, you'll still be using four if it's quicker. And so there was this sort of moderation in Happy Eyeballs that said, you know, give V4 a 50 millisecond time penalty. Just a little bit. Just a tiny bit. 50 milliseconds is barely perceptible. If you get to the end of V6 and you're within 50 milliseconds of V4, just go with V6. Slight biasing. And this is fine. This is fine for TCP and for the web. But what about the DNS? You see, the DNS is not a conversational protocol. It's send a question and wait for an answer. And so if you send off a question in V4 and a question in V6, all you're doing is doubling the load of the DNS. 
There's no subsequent session. If you get an answer, you're done. So this whole idea of happy eyeballs being a race between protocols, which some idiots seem to think applied to the DNS in RFC 8305, just doesn't understand the way the DNS works. Yeah. All you're doing when you send off multiple queries in V4 and V6 back-to-back is just increasing the cost of the DNS and increasing the load and gives the user no benefit. Well, I have this other thought, Jeff, which is how I transport a question in DNS about any question I ask has no bearing whatsoever on the thing I'm going to do when I get the answer. If I ask you, tell me over six how to get to my bank, I might still go to my bank in four. So there's a rather weird decoupling between the things I do in DNS and the things I'm going to do with the answer. The protocol you use for the DNS has very little to do with the questions you ask in the DNS. Exactly. Exactly. So we kind of had this feeling that the real issue was fragmentation barely works in V4, if you're really are strict about it. It works, but it's not brilliant. And it really, really doesn't work in V6. Yeah. And the question really is, well, why are we tolerating fragmentation in V6? Oh, well, that's an interesting kind of question. And more to the point, if we don't want to tolerate fragmentation in V6, what are we going to do about it? Well, the answer, oddly enough, is really simple. And it became enshrined in DNS Flag Day 2020. If I don't want you to try and send me back a big answer, I don't give you a buffer size of 4,096 bytes. Yeah. I give you a buffer size of, say, 1,440 bytes going, if it's bigger than that, don't bother using UDP. So although we've got a mechanism that was originally designed to say, I will accept huge answers in UDP, we flipped it on its head and said, we now need to use this to say, do not go bigger than this limit, and we're dragging that limit down. Well, we can specify a limit. Now, what happens if I have a big answer and you've given me saying, don't tell me if the the answer is greater than 1,500 octets? And I go as the server, not a problem, George, just not a problem. I will send you back an answer, which is your question, and the magic truncated bit. Yep. I'd like to tell you, but the answer's too big to fit in the margin of of this UDP packet. (laughs) Fermat's answer. It's Fermat's DNS. Fermat bit. Uh, You're going to have to re-ask the question re-ask the question over TCP. Now, just think about that for a second because you've got an answer not in a timeout but in a conventional round-trip time. Yeah. So if we're 10 milliseconds apart, you're not waiting for one second. You've got an answer, retry and TCP, in 10 milliseconds flat. So it is incurring costs, but the delay cost is just so much better than the previous fail state. Right. So... The real issue is if you're going to use V6 for UDP, if you're going to do that, then set your EDNS buffer size to something. Now, the internet is a 1500 octet packet size. We know that. Ethernet's very persistent. Everything bigger is an exception. Smaller stuff is weird. So you could probably set it to 1500 and get away with it. But V6 had a new standard definition 
Oddly enough, V4 didn't. The minimum unfragmented packet size in V4 is about 64 bytes or something tiny. But in V6, they said something different. 1,280 bytes will get through the internet without fragmentation. Holus bolus, it will make it there. No problem. So if you set your eDNS buffer size to 1280 minus the size of a V6 header, 40, minus the size of a UDP header, 8, then the answer will never get fragmented. So if you set your buffer size to 1,232, it'll get through unfragmented. If all the other parts line up, and they generally do. They generally do. So we started to ask the internet. Now, it's a very hard question to ask because some resolvers serve tens of millions of users, and my local resolver serves me, one. So counting resolver behavior doesn't really work because the, one, the answers given by the one that serves 10 million is actually really important because a lot of users are using that value. So we did, if you will, a user-weighted survey of resolver behavior, and the answers are deeply disturbing. Some 48% of users who sit behind V6-capable resolvers use 4096. What percentage? They say 48. I know, it's, it's amazing. It's kind of, problem, what problem? But they're never going to get the answer most of the time. Oh, no, it's okay. What do you mean it's okay? It's not okay. And it's kind of, if you weren't doing that, V6 would actually perform better. But no, you're making sure that V6 performs horribly. In the words of RFC 2119, this is a should not. You really should not be doing this because it's crazy. So we need significant change on the side of clients asking questions and resolvers forwarding questions. We need that system to change. And that's what the intent was of DNS Flag Day 2020. Now, I don't know if it was COVID. I don't know whatever it was, but literally no one is listening. So 48% in, in V6. In V4, it's not that much better. It's 39% of folk sit behind resolvers that use 4096. Now, in V4... So we have significant work to do if we're going to make this particular guidance help. Some numbers have to change. Now, if, if we actually got everyone to say, look, I'm just not going to use a bigger number. I'm going to go for 1232 everywhere. Then big packets would get sent via TCP. We wouldn't get into fragmentation black holes. We wouldn't get into the entire V6 nightmare that is fragmentation. And that should, should have V6 in the DNS makes a little bit more sense. Yep. At a cost of infrastructure overhead, maintaining TCP sessions. But, you know, that's probably tenable. That's a conversation of its own. And we are talking about modern DNS now lying over Quick, over HTTPS, over TLS. But it's not the end of the world to use a buffer size of 1232. No. You know, it just isn't. And so if your company should do V6 with better bloody well should, it really is imperative to use a buffer size of 1232, then it transforms what I think is rather nutty advice 
into, I think, the best engineering we can do to compromise our way around. Yeah. You kind of go, well, why do you persist with the DNS over UDP anyway? And the answer is, do you know how much I pay for my DNS queries to get answered? Nothing. Big fat zero. Do you know how much you pay? Nothing. Big fat zero. The DNS is basically an economic miracle because all of this work and literally the folk who benefit from it don't directly pay for it. Yeah, it's an externality in cost terms. So, yeah, when you say, oh, you DNS guys, you should use TCP all the time, the cost of answering a query should triple because TCP has about the third of the throughput of UDP, then the DNS folk kind of go, yeah, right, and who's going to pay? And the answer is, well, not me, not you, nobody. So here we are. We want to use UDP. We just don't want to use it in its extremities. So, yes, if you can keep V6 tamed, if you can keep V6 be, you know, underneath the fragmentation level, then all of a sudden this kind of looks pretty good. Yeah. If you keep your buffer size down, and that's a must, yeah. then you can contemplate may use you to V6, even should at a pinch, at a pinch. But until you do the buffer size. You must not make this fatal mistake. You must not make it worse. Yeah. And, and so that's the kind of bit that I took out of it. It's sort of engineering these cases, and the DNS is incredibly complex. Engineering this requires consideration of a whole bunch of factors yeah. around the protocol, the behavior, the application, and the network. This is not a little thing. I think there's a kind of guiding principle deciding to modify protocols, which is first do no harm. And so setting out to revise the guidance for DNS was probably a laudable goal. But if it mandated or tried to encourage six without first thinking of the potential for harm, it's gone a bit too far. Right. Without thinking about why the original RFC actually said V6 guidelines, nah, not ready for it actually had some thought behind it and just simply go, well, it was wrong. We should change that. This doesn't really match the thinking. You've got to understand the nature of the beast you're dealing with. So yeah, that's what amused me last week at the IETF, George. I hope it amused your listeners as well. I think that's fantastic, Jeff. Thanks for that. I take it there'll be a blog on the lab site about this. I think you might find there already is. And uh, yes, to all you V6 zealots out there, prepare to be offended. <laughs> Thanks, Jeff. See you next time. A pleasure, George. Thanks. If you've got a story or research to share here on Ping, why not get in contact by email to ping at apnic.net or via the APNIC social media channels. Also, remember the measurement at apnic.net mailing list on Orbit is there to discuss and share relevant collaborative opportunities grants and funding opportunities, jobs and graduate placings, or to seek feedback from the community on your own measurement projects. Be sure to check out the APNIC website for all your resource and community needs. Until next time.